If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, as we continue through the gospel according to Luke. If I, um, if I ever end up over at Joel and Evelyn's house, very often when I'm leaving, I go across the street from their um, subdivision or allotment or whatever word you might choose, their neighborhood, over to the neighborhood across the street there. It's called Norton Commons. Have you guys ever been over there and seen Norton Commons? I don't know why. It's just this interesting place. It's kind of, um, it's a neighborhood filled with all these very neat and, and quaint and unique houses. And it's set in this community where they've set up um, at kind of at the center. There's there's restaurants and parks, and I think they've got a YMCA now, and there's a, there's a pool. And it's kind of trying to bring this urban neighborhood feel or maybe even it reminds me of something out of it. If you've ever seen the movie The Truman Show, it reminds me of something out of that. Or maybe getting Mayberry, you know, the Andy Griffith show, getting that whole feel back where you you have friends and neighbors. And actually on their website, they have testimonials, things to convince you to come and live in, in Norton Commons. And this is one of the things that, that someone says. They say, living in Norton Commons is like reliving a, a bygone time. Remember sitting on your front porch and neighbors stopping by to chat, having sidewalks and street lights. Your neighbors become friends and were there when you needed them. This neighborhood feeling of long ago is returning here in Norton Commons, and we love it. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds kind of like a dream world, and I think that maybe there's, there's some truth to that. Um, it, it sounds like something maybe none of us have ever really experienced, that sort of neighborhood feel and maybe that I think that's what they're trying to create as something unique, something different, something wonderful, something better than all the other neighborhoods uh, that are out there. It remind, I, I thought of that because as I'm going as we're going through the book of, of Luke and here in chapter six we've we've come to see Jesus showing up on, on the scene of history and he comes with this announcement. This announcement that he's coming and he's bringing something unlike anyone has ever seen before, Any, unlike anything that has been known on earth, this this kingdom that he's coming to bring. We can think about the prophecies. You remember going through chapters 1 through 2, and we had these prophecies of, of Mary and Zechariah and Simeon, and, and they come and they're proclaiming, they're, they're singing these songs about the coming of Jesus, and they're talking about how he's going to exalt the humble, and he's going to fill the hungry, and, and the knowledge of salvation is going to to spread, and it's going to be a time of light for those that are in darkness, and it's going to be a time of, of light and revelation to even the Gentiles. This this wonderful time, like, unlike any other, is now coming in because Jesus is coming. And then in chapter 3, John the Baptist comes onto the scene, and, and John preaches with authority, and he's just this unique individual. And it causes everyone to wonder if, if he's the one, is he the promised Messiah, is he the one that we've been waiting for that's going to usher in this amazing kingdom but he says he says it's not it's not me in fact he says i'm not even unworthy to untie this guy's sandals to do the lowliest task for the one who is coming this one who's going to come and he says he's going to baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire and so everything is is pushing they're all prophesying about this great time that is coming that jesus is going to inaugurate that he's going to bring and then jesus himself comes on the scene and, and we see him and he's anointed with the spirit at his baptism 
He's, he's thrust out into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. He's victorious over Satan. He defeats him in all of his temptations. And then he, he goes into his hometown, Nazareth. And you remember this scene where he goes in the synagogue and he takes up the scroll and he reads from the book of Isaiah. And these are the words that he reads. This is the time that he's inaugurating, that he's bringing in. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus has come to proclaim, this, this new time, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a new kingdom. He goes throughout all the towns, and we watch him as he's healing people, and he's, he's casting out demons, and he brings in part a fulfillment of all that had been said in these earlier chapters, and we see that he's bringing this this kingdom and that the kingdom of Jesus is unlike anything else. The kingdom of Jesus is unlike anything else. And as we consider through, con- continue through our study of Luke's gospel, we think about these words here in Luke 6, even through the end of chapter 6, I think we see this truth hammered home that the kingdom of Jesus is unlike anything else. It's unique. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's unlike anything that we have ever seen. Norton Commons has nothing on the kingdom of Jesus. You know, when we speak about a kingdom, that, maybe that's, that's not a term that we use too often. We don't talk about the kingdom of America, do we? Uh, maybe some people do. <laughs> but at its most basic level, what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, it means is, is the rule and the reign of God. That God is in control. He is on the throne. When you think about a kingdom, there's some different elements that people talk about that are a part of a kingdom. There's, there's obviously a king. Every kingdom needs a king. Um, there's, there's a, a chosen people that they're, they're ruling over, this, this group of individuals. They're the citizens of this kingdom. Um, there, there's also a, a location for the kingdom. There's a, there's a place. There's a, a realm. Um, and even th- there's also usually principles or, or laws that, that govern this kingdom. So we can think about a king, we can think about a, a, a people, um, we can think about a place, and we can think about principles. These are all things that are a part of a kingdom. And so the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is focused on Jesus' rule over his people and the different principles that are a part of what that's going to look like. We've said this in the past, but in the, the coming of, of Jesus, the kingdom comes. The kingdom is, is here. Jesus is, is reigning. He is, he is on his throne. But there's also this sense in which it has not yet come, that it is already here and yet it is still to come, that that he is the king ruling over his chosen people, the citizens of his kingdom, but there is a time to come when he will be here in fullness, ruling fully over the entire earth, and there will be peace and there will be rest. So the kingdom is here, and yet it's also not here. And here in chapter 6, we, we see some of the elements of this unique kingdom that Jesus has, has inaugurated, this, this kingdom unlike anything else. And yet even as we say it's unlike anything else, there are all these wonderful shadows of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, the Old Kingdom, and Jesus is bringing all of that to fulfillment. He's, he's enlightening it. He's, making even, he's showing how wonderful this, this new kingdom is. You know, we can think about that where... The Pharisees were bringing these questions. Remember, they brought questions about fasting and about Sabbath. And Jesus says, I fast, but it's totally different. I keep the Sabbath, but it's totally different. It, it's, it's wine still, but it's new wine. It's cloth, but it's 
new cloth is kind of the way that he talks about it. It's it's the same, but it's totally different. And so we're going to see some of those shadows of the Old Covenant. I think hopefully that's enough introduction, trying to set the stage for what we're getting into here. But let's read together Luke 6, and we're just going to read, we're going to read through 12 through 26, but we'll focus just on 12 through 19 this morning. And we're thinking on this truth that the kingdom of Jesus is unlike anything else. Luke 6, 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, whom was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This passage, again, we're thinking that the, the kingdom of Jesus is unlike anything else. It opens, though, with this, this prayer, this, this scene, I guess. It sets the scene. It says, in these days, nothing specific is given, but in those days, Jesus goes out to a mountain to pray. And when he gets to this mountain, he prays, and he prays all night continues in prayer all night long. This is something we've seen, haven't we? Jesus separated himself in prayer. We see it in chapter 4, verse 42, chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus often withdraws into desolate places and spends time in communion with his Father. And I can't help but say that this reminds us again that if Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, saw it necessary to withdraw often and spend time in prayer, then so should we. Just a reminder to us. This is what Je this was Jesus' pattern of life, that he often withdrew, that he often separated himself and spent time alone in prayer, and we should make it a priority to do the same, to spend time in communion with our Father. Beyond that, I just want you to think about a couple things. The first is the location of this prayer. The location, where is he at? He's not in a desolate place, though it probably was somewhat desolate. It was away from people. He goes up on the mountain. He goes up onto the mountain to pray. I'm reminded of this scene as, as we see these shadows of the Old Testament, reminded of Moses. Think about Moses when he went up on the mountain. We read that scene from Exodus 19 where he, he goes up on the mountain. You remember he speaks face to face 
with God. He speaks to him like a friend. But he receives the law of God. He communes with God. And then he prepares to come down to the people and to tell them what God is revealing, how God is revealing himself to his people. And here Jesus, who the author of Hebrews says is the, the greater Moses, Jesus is up on the mountaintop with his Father, with God, communing with him, speaking with him face-to-face in this mystery of prayer. So that's the vocation. Then think about the length of his prayer. (laughs) How long did he pray? All night. All night he continued in prayer. It's unique that it says that there. He spent the whole night praying to the Father. Isn't that a challenge? Um, I, I look at that and I just immediately think about the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think that's more like what I am. Where Jesus comes and said, couldn't you just spend an hour in prayer? <laughs> he's not asking me to spend a whole night. He's asking me just to spend an hour in prayer. So I don't think the application of this is to say, go home and spend the whole night in prayer tonight. I don't think that that's the application. Um, I'm not saying that you should never do that. I think there are times that we should seek to pray in that way. But again, I think it's simply showing us this great need that we have of the Father, how much we truly need to pray and how dependent we should be upon the Father. Now, And the reason I say I don't think you should go home and pray all night is that many of us don't have a consistent pattern of prayer in general in our lives. And so we, we, it, that would be like saying um, for most of us, I think probably for all of us, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and run a marathon. Now, if we all got up and said, I'm going to go run 26 miles tomorrow, I don't know that any of us would, would pull it off. Why? Well, because we're not trained to do that at this point. And so I think that's the same thing as me saying, go home and pray all night. Sometimes we get jazzed up and we say, I'm going to go home and I'm just going to pray for an hour straight and you make it five minutes and you fall asleep. And it's so discouraging. But rather, if you're going to exercise, you don't get up and go run a marathon. You say, you know what? Consistency over a long period of time is what's necessary. If I could, you know, every day spend five minutes in prayer. If I just say, you know what? I'm going to say to, to my spouse, hey, you know what, every night, let's let's pray together before we go to bed. Let's just do it every night. And even if it's just five minutes and we fall asleep 50% of the time, we're going to be consistent to do it, and we're going to build a pattern of prayer into our lives. So don't look at this and say, ah, oh, i got to pray all night tonight. But rather say, prayer is necessary. And it was a part of Jesus' everyday life, and that there were seasons where he prayed for an extended period of time. And prayer should be a part of our everyday life. And there will be seasons where we really concentrate on prayer. But that what it should flow out of is just an attitude, a constant attitude of prayer. Do it together. Do it in community. I mentioned a spouse. It could be a friend or, or anyone, someone else in the church that, that you would do that with. But I would encourage you to, to do that. So we think about this location of the prayer, the length of the prayer. But I, I think we also have to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus retreat to the mountaintop? And then spend the whole night in prayer. There's something unique about that. So we have to ask, why is he doing this? We could look backwards and say, well, it's the pressure of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are mounting, they're, they're starting to look at what they can do to Jesus, and so he spends prayer, time in prayer related to that. It could be that, but I think more it's probably what follows and what immediately follows. What immediately follows this is the choosing of the twelve. I think this is a key moment. In the ministry of Jesus, in the history of the world, you could even say. And so as Jesus is getting ready to make this massive decision in his ministry, he spends the whole night in prayer to the Father. 
spends the whole night seeking the Lord to understand what the Father's will is for this major decision in his life. Isn't that a good pattern? I can't help but think of Matt Nestor, who made a major decision this past week and are now engaged to be married. That's one of the biggest decisions you make in your life. And I know in talking to Matt and Nestor that there has been time in prayer, that they have been praying and praying and praying about whether or not this is God's will. And they will continue to do that, to seek God's face. And that's as we make big decisions and little decisions, we should always come to the Lord. So often we just take a step back and we rely on our own intuition. Or we talk to others and get advice from friends, but we don't seek the Lord. We don't ask God, what would you have me to do? What is your will in this situation? And there may be times where we spend prolonged periods of time in prayer, maybe concentrated times or maybe over weeks. I think about that as our church, as we seek to do ministry, that we don't want to just say, well, this looks good, let's try it. But that we would pray, we would seek the face of the Lord. Of course, there's a time when the decision has to be made and we need to do something. But, but prayer before these big decisions is important. And so when we ask the question why, at least it's the choosing of the twelve. But I think it goes I think it goes beyond that. Because the events of that whole day that follow are are amazing. There, there there's this unique proclamation of the kingdom that happens. He chooses the twelve, and then we're going to see there's this display of his power as he heals and casts out demons, and then he he speaks forth his most famous message, the Sermon on the Mount. People call this the Sermon on the Plain because it, it's different, but they're so similar. One of the, the key um, elements of the preaching of what the kingdom of God is going to look like, I imagine that he was praying about all of this, about the choosing of the twelve and about the ministry that he was doing and about this this message that he was going to proclaim. And so he is he's seeking the face of the Lord at this key moment in the proclamation of what he is going to do. But the first task, of course, is the choosing of the twelve. And so as we think about the uniqueness of Jesus' kingdom, but it's unlike anything else, we, I think we notice the people. The people love his kingdom. Think about the people that Jesus has chosen. We, the text tells us that he says there in um, verse 13, when day came, after he's been praying all night, he calls his disciples, and he chooses from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now we often talk about the twelve disciples, right? But this makes a distinction between disciples and apostles. It's not wrong to say it's the twelve disciples. Some of the other authors say that, but there is this distinction in the crowd that there were people who were disciples. They were followers of Jesus. They were learners. And we see at some point there's, you know, the seventy disciples, or or there's large crowds of disciples. And from this larger crowd, Jesus chooses twelve to be apostles. Not just to be learners and followers, but even to be sent out from him, to be his ambassadors in a sense. I wonder how this unfolded. Can you imagine? All the disciples are there, and Jesus chooses 12. Was it like, you know, on the playground? Uh, we're picking up teams here, you know, and he says, James. No, not not that James, the other James, son of Alphaeus. You come here, you come on me. You know, is that what it was like as he's separating out the crowds? And that? I mean, that would be pretty intimidating, wouldn't it? And kind of disheartening. If you've ever been in that situation, you wonder, am I going to be picked last? What if you didn't get picked at all? You know, I mean, that would be totally depressing. And so I trust that Jesus did this in a fairly diplomatic way that made everyone, you know, not upset. Though I'm sure there were, one, there were some people that, hey, how did he get chosen and not me, you know? <laughs> um, but however it happened, the, the 12 are chosen. And they're chosen to be part of this, this inner circle 
I love what Mark says. Mark says this in Mark 3.14. He says that Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So he chooses 12. Why? First of all, so that they would be with him. So that they would just be with him, that they would be close to him, that they would know he's, this is, this is discipleship. This is what we talk about when we speak of discipleship. That discipleship so much, if someone comes, you know, someone's come to me at times and said, I want you to disciple me. What that means to me is, okay, we're just going to hang out all the time and talk about what scripture says. That's what discipleship is, to be with someone. And so they're, they're chosen to be with Jesus. What an amazing thing. And then he says that he's going to send them, that they're going to, to preach the message that they hear. And that they're going to be given authority to cast out demons, that Jesus gives them power and authority. It's not an authority that they have in and of themselves, but just as Jesus is sent from the Father, in the power of the Father, the disciples, the apostles are sent from Jesus in the power that Jesus has. It's a borrowed authority. It's a, something that they do not have. And, and while we are not apostles, this is a unique role, I do think that this is, this is how we are called. Think about this, that Jesus has chosen you that, that that he's chosen you to be on his team to be with him and, and not just to be with him but to be a proclaimer of of who he is and, and what he's come to do and not like that but he's he's given you power power over sin and power over satan that this is what jesus has called us to do and to be as his people that we are to be with him and to be sent out from him so how many does he choose he chooses 12 why didn't he choose Five. Why didn't he choose 15 or 7 or 20 or 11? You know, he could have left Judas out. Why does he choose 12? I think Jesus is making a statement. And again, this is where we see that this is this is new, but it's it's old. When you think of the number 12, what do we think of? In the Old Testament, we think about the 12 tribes. We think about the 12 sons that, that formed the foundation of Israel. And Jesus is making a bold statement here. He's saying, I'm choosing 12. I'm establishing something new. It's like the old, but it's new. I'm, I'm bringing something new in, and I'm going to build this kingdom, build this community on these 12 men, and they are going to be the ones that are, that are sent out. So it's, it's, it's wine, but it's new wine. It's cloth, but it's, it's new cloth. It's something very different. They remind us that, that God was looking to make for himself a, a peculiar people, this this nation of, of priests, and now Jesus is saying, this is what I'm coming to do. And, and we we become a part of this unique community that Jesus calls in. And 1 Peter 2, you know these verses well, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These are all Old Testament imagery, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Jesus calls out from amongst the, 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 the all the disciples, these 12 apostles, to be the foundation. And God has chosen us to be his peculiar people, to be his unique nation, to be his, his, his chosen people, that we are called by him to follow after him. Now, who does Jesus choose? Who does Jesus choose to be the core of this new community, this new humanity, this fulfillment of the Old Testament shadows, who does he pick? Their names are right here. Verses 14 through 16. Simon, whom he named 
Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Interesting that they have these different names. I think it's interesting there's a couple that are renamed by Jesus. Simon becomes Peter. Matthew is Levi, who we saw in the last chapter, but his identity has been totally changed, and so he has this new name. James and John are later called by Jesus the sons of thunder. So Jesus changes the identity of these men. But notice that, that I think this is what I notice. When you look at this list, we see that they were common men. They were common, everyday men. These are not, we, we don't see anyone that's a scribe or a, or a Pharisee or a religious leader. We don't see anyone that's that's high in social status. There's no celebrities in the disciples, you know. Very interesting. In fact, he, he chooses, as we've seen, he chooses people that were outcasts. He's got four fishermen right off the bat. Smelly, stinky fishermen that no one wanted to be around. And then he's got a, a tax collector in there. I mean, these are these are the outcasts of society, and these are the people that he chooses. Not only that, but think about the fact that, I mean, how many of these guys do you really know a lot about? Now, we know a lot about Peter. James and John um, are, are pretty well known. We know about Judas, but why do we know about Judas? <laughs> because he was unfaithful. Why do we know about Thomas? Because he was a doubter. Why do we know about James and John? Because they wanted to call down fire on people. Yeah. They're not really known for how great they were, for their... Their amazing skills. And many of them we don't know anything about. Bartholomew, if I told you to write you know, a paragraph about what you know about Bartholomew, or Simon the Zealot, you would write, Simon was a zealot. I mean, there's nothing else that we know about these guys. These are common, everyday guys. I think about what it says in the book of Acts, that, that when the disciples come before the leaders, they say, they were they look at them and they say, they were astonished because these were just, uneducated, common men. That's how they describe them. Uneducated, unschooled. They, they, they didn't. They weren't highfalutin guys. These are just regular, normal, everyday people. And Jesus says, this is what I'm going to build my kingdom. This is how I'm going to start this new work. It's, it's amazing that that's, this is who he, he calls together. Not only were they common, but they were, many of them, they were opposed to each other. It's amazing when you look at that. You think about Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Simon, the zealot, wanted to overthrow the Roman government. He saw that that was part of what the Jewish people should be doing. And so he had this uprising of trying to get Rome out of Israel. And Matthew has bought in with Rome and is actually working to collect taxes for them. And then you put these two guys in the same group. It's like oil and water. And they come together. And then you've got Peter the ultimate optimist who always says, yeah, we can do it. And Thomas, the ultimate doubter, who says, I don't believe anything. And these guys all come together. They're, they're opposed to each other, and yet they come together because of Jesus. Jesus calls them together. Isn't this us? <laughs> Isn't this the church? Uh, Paul talks about how um, there's not many noble, there's not many wise in this world. You know, the celebrities of the world don't come to the church. It's not the beautiful people that typically come. It's not the rich we'll see even later. But it's normal, common, everyday people that Jesus calls. That's what the church is largely made up of. I think sometimes we get ashamed of that. 
well, maybe we, you know, we need some celebrities. We love when a celebrity comes out and says, I'm a Christian. Why? Because, well, it looks good for us. They're, because the church is just made up of regular, common, everyday people. And people that are naturally opposed to one another. That are natural enemies. That maybe don't have much in common. But Jesus calls us together. This is, this is part of the power of the kingdom, isn't it? That, that he has called this group of people that is so diverse, and yet we have Christ in common. We are uneducated, common people. We're not something special. Maybe that's news to you, but, but Jesus didn't choose us because of all that we had to offer him. In fact, he chooses the weak things of the world. Why? To confound the wise. He chooses the foolish things of the world so that he can be seen as wise and strong. It's amazing, too, to think that he chose Judas, isn't it? I mean, he's right there. He's always in, in all the lists. Judas is always last. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I, it's hard to say. Did, did Jesus know what he was doing? Did he know that, that this man would be the seed of rebellion? Even possibly the undoing of this was what it looked like. But God certainly knew. And he'd spent the whole night in prayer to God. So we know that this is God's will, that Judas be a part of the twelve. How amazing is that? That's strange. But remember, this is a kingdom unlike anything we've ever seen before. And in fact, Judas being there is part of the reason that this kingdom triumphs. Because how does Jesus triumph, ultimately? How does he conquest? It's through the betrayal of Judas, his arrest, his mock trial, his crucifixion. That's what's amazing about this kingdom, isn't it? That what seems to be its undoing is actually the source of its power. That the death of Christ is the way that a salvation is brought about. And so if we are called to be members of this community, it's not because of anything good that we've done, but it's because of what Christ has done, that he has taken common people that were opposed to one another and that were opposed to him. He's called us to himself. We've been reconciled to God. We who were enemies with God, we've been reconciled. How? By the blood of his cross by the fact that he has died to bring us salvation. And not only that, but that he has given us his righteousness so that we become not simply citizens of this kingdom, but we are sons of the king. And there's the power of the kingdom. I think that's the next thing we see, the people of the kingdom and then the power. The power of this kingdom. The shadows of the Old Testament continue as we think about the power of God in the midst of Israel. You think about the exodus and the how God freed them. You think about um, the, the cloud and the fire and, and, and all the fire that was on Mount Sinai, this power that God was displaying to his people, and then the conquest of the land and his enemies. And, and Jesus comes, and he comes in power. It says he comes down off this mountain, and he stands on a level place. And, and people come from everywhere. Just think about the draw that people from Jerusalem, people from the seacoast, from Tyre and Sidon, Probably Jews and Gentiles are like everyone is streaming to come out and see Jesus. And they come, and when they come, they listen to him as he speaks with power. And then he heals them. He brings healing from disease. He brings freedom from unclean spirits. Think about this healing again. We've seen this. Remember, he heals the paralytic. Why? So that he can show he has the power to forgive sins. What is the, what is the reason for the healing? The healing is to show that Jesus is able to heal our souls, that Jesus is able to bring forgiveness of sins and all that he brings 
points to the fact that he is able to bring ultimate and true healing. That is the core of why he has come. And then this this emphasis on on demons being cast out. Do you see that here? It says, those who were troubled with unclean spirits cured, cast out demons. And, and as he does that, he, he proclaims that, that Satan is being defeated, that part of his coming is is the defeat of Satan. Let me read something to you from this book by uh, George Eldon Ladd. Matt and I are reading through this called The Gospel of the Kingdom. It says, what is the gospel of the kingdom? What means the announcement that the kingdom of God has come near? It is this, that God is now acting among men to deliver them from bondage to Satan. That that's part of what the kingdom means, that God is acting among men to deliver them from bondage to Satan. It is the announcement that God, in the person of Christ, is doing something. If you please, he is attacking the very kingdom of Satan himself. The exorcism of demons is proof that the kingdom of God has come among men and is at work among them. The casting out of demons is itself a work of the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting that, that when Jesus is casting out of demon, demons, what he's announcing is, I have come to defeat Satan. He'll talk later as, as the um, disciples go out. He says, I saw Satan falling from heaven. I don't think Jesus literally saw Satan falling from heaven, but what he's saying is Satan is being dethroned. I have come and I am bringing power over Satan. And the ultimate power comes at the cross, that he defeats the devil and he defeats death. The healing, the exorcism all point to this, that death and Satan will be defeated ultimately. And at the cross it happens in large measure. And then it will happen fully when he comes again and casts Satan into the pit. And there will be no more death. And there will be no more dying. This is the power that he has, has come to bring. And it's been accomplished as he comes into this, this kingdom. So he's announcing something totally different. He comes and he brings these 12 and he says, this is the new kingdom built on these 12 men. And look at the power that I have. I have power over, over sickness. I have power over death. I have power over sin to bring forgiveness. And then look in closing just briefly, kind of as an introduction to the next few weeks at the principles of this kingdom. So the people, power, principles, they begin in verse 20. These are familiar passages. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And he goes on to speak of the Beatitudes. Then he goes on and he talks later, beginning in verse 27, about how we are to love our enemies. Talks beginning in verse 37 about judging, how we're not to judge others. Talks about a tree and its fruit and the house that's built on the rock, how we're supposed to listen to him. And we get this picture again of Jesus. Remember, he's gone up on the mountain. And he calls the disciples to himself, the twelve apostles to himself. Then he comes down off the mountain, stands on this level plain, pronounces the power of the kingdom, and then begins to preach. And there's this beautiful picture you think about when Moses comes off the mountain with these tablets in his hand. It's the law of God, and Jesus has come to announce a new law. This is the new, the new principles for my kingdom. And here are, here's what they look like. The poor are exalted. The hungry are the ones that are blessed. The rich will be cursed. He says, love your enemies. That's what my kingdom is founded on. And don't judge other people. That's what his kingdom looks like. It's unlike anything we have ever seen before. You read these Beatitudes. And what our society loves are the rich and the people that are full and the people that laugh and the people that are spoken well of. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. 
Not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, it's those that are poor and that are hungry and that weep and those that are hated. That's unlike anything we've ever seen before, isn't it? This is something totally different. He says that you're supposed to love your enemies. <laughs> no one says that. If you're going to win as a kingdom, you need to defeat your enemies. And Jesus says, no, I think you actually should love them. And he announces these new principles. It's just something unlike we've ever seen before. We're going to get to look at that in the next few weeks. But but my heart for today, just as I was reading through this, is just to say, Jesus has, has brought something completely unique and different that we should rejoice in. And that we should recognize that we have been brought in to be a part of this. Not, not because of anything good that we have done. We're just like the disciples, common, uneducated, normal, everyday people. But God has called us to be a part of his kingdom, to be proclaimers of that kingdom. And he's given us his power, and he's come in power to forgive us of our sins, to defeat death in us, so that by faith in Christ, we no longer fear death. And we no longer fear the, fear the devil. We no longer fear Satan. He has been defeated at the cross, and he will be defeated fully and finally one day. And this is the kingdom that we are a part of. And it's unlike anything else you have ever seen in your life. It's totally unique. And as in the world we see people trying to build up different kingdoms and trying to, to find success, Jesus comes and he says, you're doing it all wrong. Here's how you do it. You come in humility to me. This is You submit to me, and then you follow these principles. I'm the one with the power. Think back about Norton Commons. It's this beautiful community. I mean, the, the houses are, are amazing. I, the, the green space is nice. The sidewalks are, are pretty. There's nice restaurants. There's a swimming pool. There's a YMCA. You know what is missing from Norton Commons? There's no church. There's no church in Norton Commons, which is ironic when you think about it. Because you think about these old neighborhoods and this neighborhood feel that they're trying to get back. Part of what was at the core of that was that the church was central to the community. But there's no church in Norton Commons. It's a kingdom of men. It's a kingdom built on the principle of let's be neighborly and let's love one another. But that doesn't work without Christ at the center. And that's what the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring is. Ultimately, he says, I am the king. And no kingdom will ever work. You can, you can love people as much as you want. And you can do as much good as you want. You can follow all the Beatitudes and you can follow all the commands of Jesus. But if he is not at the center, if he is not worshipped as the king, then it's not his kingdom. Because if it's a kingdom, you have to have a king. And Jesus says, I alone am king. And you have to worship me. And if you put me at the center, then that is where the hope is. The kingdom of Jesus has Jesus at the center. And we look forward to this day when he will come and he will set it up fully. And he will be the center. He will be the light. And there will be no more death. And Satan will be defeated fully. And finally, we will be there in the full brightness of his kingdom. But there is something that has come. That what we long for is in part here. And it's in part here in the church. It's got people gathered together. And then as we go out and we proclaim that Jesus has come. And he pronounces forgiveness of sins. He pronounces the defeat of Satan. And he pronounces that anyone and everyone can come. Common and exalted. Anyone can come to Christ if you come on Bended Moon.